0: so delighted to be with you this evening to lead you in the riches of God's word. This tonight from Psalm 32. We're going to read the first seven verses and then try to understand what the Holy Spirit has to say to us through that scripture. Psalm 32 God's word. The very word of God as follows. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him, and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer, then I acknowledged my sin to you, and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Thus far, God's holy word. Uh, dear friends, the commentators on this psalm are almost all agreed that it was written after a specific event in the life of King David really wasn't an event it was a um, it was an illicit affair he had with bathsheba you all know the story probably so i won't uh, mention it very uh, very extensively but except to remind you that david had a palace near the top of the hill called mount zion or mount uh, or jerusalem It was the highest building on the hill at the time. Fifty years later, Solomon built the temple even higher on the hill. But at the time, there he was, perched very high on Mount Zion. And there were residences all down the slopes on most sides, mostly to the south. And at one of those homes was a woman named Bathsheba. She was living alone at the time, because her husband Uriah was out fighting David's war. He was in the military service. And uh, there she was and decided to bathe herself on the rooftop. The the houses had flat roofs, of course. The very uh, rather dry climate, something like Southern California. You don't have to be so concerned about water running off a slanted roof. And that was not really uncommon, you know, because in that hot climate, they didn't have bathtubs. People often, after the sunset, likely, um, had a sponge bath, and that's likely what she was doing. And David was observing this from his lofty position. He liked what he saw, and so he's the king. After all, he sent a messenger down and invited her up for the evening. And you know the rest. David was guilty of adultery. Now we can hardly believe it, can we? I mean, this man who says in Psalm 119, verse uh, what is it, 105? Oh, how love I thy law! It is my meditation day and night. You know the law of God, the Ten Commandments were two hundred, were four hundred years old by the time. David wrote those words. And he knew what it said about coveting your neighbor's wife. He knew what it said about thou shalt not commit adultery. But he did it. Well, he thought that was the end, and he went to other governmental affairs. Um, I hope they were governmental affairs. (laughs) Uh, Legal affairs of what a king, whatever a king does. Until sometime later, maybe a month, six weeks, word comes back to him that Bathsheba is expecting a baby. And remember, she was living alone. Her husband was off to war. Uriah had been a convert from a pagan country into David's religion, the fear of the Lord. A Hittite nation, a pagan nation, and this is the way David treats his wife. Well, of course, then David went into cover-up mode, you know. And uh, after all, he was in charge of everything, so he, he let King, forget his name, or ex- rather, General Moab, uh, let him know that he'd like Uriah to be given a furlough. <laughs> in the Navy and Marine Corps, we called it liberty. Liberty. And it really is a freeing thing after the rigidity of of military life to have a few days free. And of course, David thought he would come home, enjoy the comforts of his home and his wife. And uh, if she had a baby eight months later, they thought it was a little premature and that would be it. But God knew. God knew. And he sent his prophet Nathan to bring David to a realization of what he had done because he not only committed adultery, he had Uriah sent back to the front line because Uriah was too patriotic to enjoy the comforts of his family, his wife, for that season while his fellow troops were, were exposing their lives on the front line. So he had Uriah ordered to the front line. Where, as David expected, he lost his life, and that was that. That was that. And David married Bathsheba, and I no one would know the difference, covered up. But God knew, and He sent the prophet Nathan to convict David of his sin. It's a great story, early in 1 Samuel. ought to read it sometime. And when David realized the enormity of his sin, you can read Psalm 51 to see the genuineness of his repentance. Have mercy upon me, O God. Purge me with hyssop that I may be clean, as we sang just a bit ago. And after he realized that God's mercy is greater than David's great sin, he penned Psalm 32. And he says, blessed is he. That word blessed means, oh, how joyful is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. I have to make an admission to you that I had a conversation a few Sundays ago with someone after the morning service in the hall, who said, you've taught in a seminary, is it really necessary for all these students to study Greek and Hebrew anymore. We've got all these fine commentators. You can find what the, what, the, what the words mean, can't we? And that motivated me to bring you this message because there are three words for evil in this passage and there are three words for God's grace. Uh, and I've called this the joy of forgiveness, because David is overwhelmed with, with, God, with God's grace and mercy, but he also realized the enormity of his sin. So first of all, then the gross sin. May I have this on the screen, please. David's joy of forgiveness is because he realized he was forgiven from gross. Sin. Now, there happen to be three words in this past, these two were verse, verses, that describe evil. And they are three different words. And there are slight nuance, nuances between them. And we're going to take them one at a time. First, the reality of evil. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven. And then a bit later, whose sins are covered. That's a synonym for transgressions. Blessed is the is a man whose sin, unfortunately the uh, NIV uses the word sin twice here when the uh, King James Version has the word iniquity as this first uh, term for evil, whose iniquity the Lord does not count against him. And I really don't know why the NIV translators use the word sin there because, Later in the passage, in verse 5, when David realizes his sin, he says, I acknowledge my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. So even the NIV uses the term iniquity a little later in the passage. First of all, then, these three terms that emphasize the grossness, the evilness, the enormity of sin. The word transgression means to rip apart to tear apart, to break something that belongs together. And that's one of the characteristics of evil, isn't it? Evil, sin, tears marriages apart. Families disrupted. It breaks up churches. It it destroys nations. And it makes enemies out of neighbors. That's one of the dark characteristics of sin. Of course, we learned that right at the outset in Genesis, when God lived in wonderful harmony with Adam and Eve. But as soon as they disobeyed God and partook of the the prohibited tree, they run and hide. The relationship is broken. That's what sin does. And David had to understand That that was happening with him. Not only between him and Bathsheba. later The child that was born died shortly after birth. They were in grief. But it cost the life of Uriah. And it tore relationships apart. And he had to understand that. One of the best figures in the Bible that characterizes this factor of evil that it tears things apart, is the prodigal son. It was bad enough that he lived a life of immorality and disaster, really, personal disaster. But the fact that it broke his relationship with a caring and loving father is what made it so severe. So that's one of the characteristics of evil. Transgression views evil as brokenness. That's word one. The second word in the passage is translated, whose sins are covered. Sin means to miss the mark. The most common term for sin in the New Testament is very similar. It means to miss the mark. It views us in our relationship with God, whom we are to adore and honor in our lives, But if we live in wickedness and rebellion, the relationship is broken. We miss the mark. One of the uh, great reformed catechisms is the Westminster Confession and Catechism. And the first question and answer, it was written about 100 or so years after the Heidelberg Catechism, but they share the same theology as a matter of fact it's almost in the same form uh, explanation of the 10 commandments and uh, the lord's prayer and the westminster adds the apostles creed it doesn't interpret it, it adds it as an addendum but it's very similar but the first question is what is the chief aim for man why did were we exist why do we exist why were we created? And the answer is to love God and enjoy him forever. That's the goal, that's the bullseye at which we should see, that our lives honor the Lord who called us to be his children. And sin, of course, um, prevents us from hitting the bullseye of life. It, It pulls down our aim, if we're aiming at the bullseye of the glory of God, it drags down our aim and we shoot at other goals, lesser goals, goals that often destroy what God intends to uphold and build up. And David had to recognize that that was a characteristic also. You know, if you think about it at all, Sin doesn't even attain its own goals. Why do people sin? Why do people steal, live immoral lives, surrender to addictions of drug and alcohol? Maybe that's still out there, so let's get closer to home. Why are we selfish? Hmm? Why are we unkind? Why are we a bit proud? Huh? isn't it because we think it'll make us happy? <laughs> if we're selfish, we build up our own ego. Huh? If we steal, we make ourselves wealthier. You see, Sin really doesn't even provide its own promises. It never hits its own bullseye of a life that is happy and joyful and God-honoring. So David had to recognize that not only did his evil rip him apart from his fellowship with fellow men and God, but he also had to recognize that it prevented him from hitting the bullseye of a God honoring life. Which brings us to the third point. And now you're trying to you're understanding, aren't you, that understanding what the original words imply that three different Hebrew words are used in this passage to describe the evil that uh, is is presented to us there is because these nuances help us to get a fuller understanding. So the the third word, I'm using the word from the King James, is iniquity, blessed is a man, whose iniquity the Lord does not count against him. The word iniquity is a very interesting term. Think of it now. I'm I'm telling you what a Hebrew word means. And this was written probably 1,000 B.C., 3,000 years ago. And there was a word in the Hebrew language that corresponds to our use of the term today. We speak of a crooked politician, a crooked businessman, was really brought to my mind. Of course, I had this message on my, in my mind also. When I read an article in today's uh, Tribune magazine section, be sure to read it if you get the Tribune. So it's, a, it's an interview with former Governor Blagojevich. Blagojevich, I don't know if I pronounced that correctly. The first time he allowed an interview, and he's been in prison five years, he got seven to go before the first time that he comes up for parole. And in this interview, just as a side light, he happened to mention that the CEO of Enron (laughs) is serving his prison term too, this corrupt politician who embezzled millions from shareholders in the Enron controversy. And Enron, of course, went bankrupt. And I thought, there you have it, right in today's magazine section, a corrupt businessman and a corrupt politician. We use the word crooked to describe them, don't we? And, when, and a person who life, lives a life of crime, we call him a crook, <laughs> just like the Hebrew in, in David's own day. Um, Iniquity means something that's crooked, something that's twisted, something that's distorted, and it corresponds to our use today. And so you have it there, sin in three aspects. In relationship to God and our fellow man, brokenness. In relationship to our aim in life, misses the mark. And finally, in relationship to the law of God, it's crookedness. But that's the bad news. And what's great about preaching the gospel is it's good news. And there's good news here. Because in these same two verses, there are three words which describe the wonder of God's grace. Can we have the second uh, thing? Um, Not only is David joyful, but he is exuberantly thankful And that's why he says, blessed, oh, how fortunate is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is a man whose sin the Lord does not count against him. First of all, then, it says that a true repentant sinner knows he is forgiven. That word means to lift off a heavy load. And you can hardly look at that word without recollecting one of the great festivals of the Hebrew peoples. I'm thinking of Yom Kippur. Yom means day in Hebrew, and Kippur means atonement, the day of atonement. It was an all-day festival, of course, but the high point was the time when the high priest called upon one of the elders of the people to bring him a goat. And the elders would confess all the sins of the people. Something like our pastors sometimes have a prayer of confession, don't don't they? Um, Calling us to seek God's forgiving mercy. Well, so did the priests on Yom Kippur. Um, And the priest received this goat and and had it slaughtered. And of course it was sacrificed on the altar and during the whole festival there were many sacrifices and so it was a festival, a feast. But the priest kept some of the blood in a bowl and he went into the Holy of Holies and he sprinkled some of that blood on the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant between the cherubim, you know. So that there would be blood between where God was symbolized between the cherubim and the law that David and you and I have broken. But then the priest went out again, and they brought another goat before him. And for the second goat, many of the elders would come and make confession of their sins, and the priest would symbolically take those confessed sins and place his hand upon the head of the goat, confessing them before the Lord, and the goat was led out into the wilderness to die. The meaning of this term reminds us that God sent his son to be our scapegoat, and the sins of all his people, God's people, are placed upon our Savior, And he was led out to a desert place called Calvary. Blessed is he whose sins are lifted up and carried away so that we bear them no more. That's how we sing, don't we? My sins, not in part, but the whole, are nailed to the cross, and I bear them no more. The second word that is described here in our scripture is simply sins. Whose sins are forgiven? Whose sins are rather are covered? That word "covered" is simply that's pretty much what we mean in English. It's something that's covered over, especially sealed tightly. And it is so often in the Old Testament used to cover something that's dirty, that smells bad. Our sins smell rank before the holy nostrils of our God. But he has a covering. We call it the blood of Christ, don't we? That seals our sins away so he doesn't even see them anymore. (laughs) He declares them covered and treats us as though we have no sin at all left. Blessed is he whose sins are covered. David understood the necessity for that covering, and he experienced it. Which brings us to our third and final term. For God's grace and mercy, the exuberance of thankfulness that should result from God's forgiving mercy, in whose, whose sin the Lord does not count against. Oh, it happens to be three words in English, just one word in Hebrew. It seems... It means that there's a debt that has to be paid. And God has forgiven it. He, The old account was settled long ago, we sing, don't we? You see, we incur debt. Spiritual, eternal debt. Whenever we sin. And David had to understand that. His debt was great, and so is ours. But those for whom the debt has been lifted up and carried away, and forgiven and carried carried away on the scapegoat, know that it will not be charged against our account. That's essentially what it means here. It's only, of course, for those who are genuinely repentant, and that's why we have the last phrase of of verse 2, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. It suggests a clean break a full admission, and the Lord's mercy is present with us. And you say, how is all this blessedness possible? Why is this text true? Well, it's because we are restored into fellowship with God because one day Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus endured that brokenness in the dark hours of Calvary. And our sins are covered because he has shed the perfect covering for the sins of all who trust him. And the payment of debt will not be charged against us because Jesus paid it all. And that's why we can now expect in his strength to at least make a start in hitting the bullseye for which He created us. And our crooked paths can be straightened out <laughs> if we walk in the path of Jesus.